President Jimmy Carter's wife, Rosalind, famously said, don't worry about the polls, but if you do, don't admit it. Unfortunately, in today's heated political landscape and 24-hour news cycle, the former First Lady's advice simply doesn't hold water. So in this episode, we'll welcome Isabel Holloway, the Assistant Director at Emerson Polling, to help us pull back the curtain on the study of public opinion to understand what it is, how it works, and why it's important. We'll discuss the evolving landscape of polling methodologies, what it takes to be a leader in the field, and how the past is influencing the future of polling. This is Campus on the Common, the podcast of bright ideas from Emerson College's School of Communication. Broadcasting from Boston, Massachusetts, I'm your host, Emerson College alumnus and professor of communication studies, Mark Brody. Isabel Holloway, welcome to Campus on the Common. Thank you for having me. I understand that you're a polling expert and that you spent some time at the Iowa caucuses. I was wondering if you could tell us about that experience. Yeah, so prior to the coronavirus um, pandemic and all the accompanying things that happened in 2020, we got to kick off 2020 with Emerson polling by taking a trip to the Iowa caucus and observing. We had been polling the, the Democratic primary race for months at that point, but no one really knows what's going to happen until election day, especially in a primary where it's fluid and election results from one primary can severely impact the results of the next. So the Iowa caucus is traditionally the first in the nation caucus, uh, the first contest in the Democratic primary. So at Emerson polling, we got to go and observe a caucus site and see the people that were there actually casting their votes by getting in a group. And we got to see, because in Iowa, in the caucus system, each candidate has to reach 15% if they want to be viable and their votes to count. So what we saw there was some groups that had lower than 15%. We got to see where those people were moving. So, for example, we got to see if, say, Pete Buttigieg, if his supporters at a certain caucus site were below 15%. We got to see if, say, they moved to Klobuchar, if they moved to Bernie Sanders, or if they moved to Joe Biden. And the Iowa caucus results that we saw that night, it was if you can remember, there was a lot of confusion because of the technology that they were using throughout the state of Iowa. But we got to see in that results was something very surprising. We saw that Joe Biden was actually underperforming his national numbers quite severely. And he actually ended up coming in fourth in the Iowa caucus, where he was projected to come a little bit higher. So we saw while our Iowa poll did reflect pretty accurately the results of the election that night, we got to take this knowledge of the Iowa caucus and apply it to the New Hampshire primary, which happened the following week. And the interesting thing that we got to do was we conducted a seven-day tracking poll with WHGH 7 News in Boston. And by doing that in New Hampshire, we got to see, we did the first day of the tracking poll before the Iowa caucus. And then we proceeded to poll every day after that. So what we got to see was the impact that the Iowa caucus had on the New Hampshire primary results. So fast forward a week from the Iowa caucus, we were sitting in New Hampshire and we had seen the prior week, there was a steady increase in support for Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar after the Iowa caucus because they had overperformed in Iowa. So we saw that the New Hampshire voters were looking at Iowa and their opinions were changing over that week. So we got to see kind of the gradual movement there, which you don't really see if you're just doing a poll once every month or so. But if you're doing a poll consistently every single day, you get to see those major changes happen in such an important race as the New Hampshire primary, which is the first primary in the nation. That's fascinating. One of the things I'm wondering about is how is polling in situations like that actually conducted? In terms of the mechanics, how does it work? 
At Emerson Poland, we use a non-traditional methodology. We usually mix different modes to get a more representative sample. For these polls, we were incorporating an online sample, a texting sample, and a landline sample. And the way that we conducted the tracking poll was every single day, we would go back in the field in all of these different modes. And we would collect about 200 more individuals. And we would add them on to our existing data set from the day before. This allowed us to compare to see if there were any significant differences between days and also expand the data set so the sample was larger and it gave us a more representative view. Very interesting. Now, it sounds like you've got a variety of different mediums out there in order to harvest this data from your sampling pools. When you apply the mix of technology to harvest information, how does that work? So when people think of polling, they traditionally think of the gold standard, which is live operator polling, which means there are individuals that are actually speaking to the respondents. They are calling their numbers and they are asking them questions one by one and hand reporting those answers. While this method is good because you are verifying that you're speaking to an actual person, you get to verify their information alongside the phone list, it's also very expensive. So as technologies have evolved and other kinds of data collection have become more representative, we've moved to innovation and using online panels, which are where you can target a specific group online and get their responses, as well as we've moved to SMS to web data collection, which is where an individual will receive a text that has a link to a survey and they can just click it. It opens in their web browser and they can take the survey that way. And prior to using solely online and texting polling, Emerson has also incorporated IVR polling, which is where landlines are robocalled with a pre-recorded message and they simply have to press a number to indicate their response to the question. With these robocalls, have people signed up to be a respondent or is it randomly done? How does, how does that element of this operation work? So for both texting and robocalls, the way that we get these respondents is that we buy a phone list of verified registered voters. And so they are not opting in at all. They can choose to not take the survey by hanging up the phone or not opening the text message, but their numbers are randomly selected. We get a random sample from these verified phone lists of registered voters. When you're putting these polls together, how do you format the questions? So you definitely want to make sure that you don't have a bias in a question. You can't ask a leading question, for example, giving someone negative information and then asking if they have a positive or negative opinion of the topic that you're asking about. Another thing that we like to do is specifically in our electoral polls where we're polling the same race, for example, the presidential race, in all of these different states, we want to make sure that we keep the candidate order consistent. So, for example, in a poll that we send out to Texas, California, Ohio, etc., we want to make sure that the respondents always get the same order of questions. So if they're asked, who are you going to vote for, Republican Donald Trump or Democrat Joe Biden, we want to make sure that that's the consistent order that we maintain in all of our surveys. This last year was very interesting to say the least, especially in the polling world. I'm wondering. How has the polling industry changed in the last few years? And were there any particular lessons learned from the 2020 experience? So after 2016, the polling industry kind of had to take a look at things because a lot of people did not expect Donald Trump to win the election. And a lot of the blame that was put on polls because there were a lot of polls that projected Hillary Clinton to be the winner. Though it's, it's worth noting that a lot of these polls that people say showed them that polling was bad, said that Hillary Clinton was going to win the popular vote nationally, which she did. The error lied in the state polls. And in 2020, the error did also lie in the state polls. There's differing opinions from different pollsters that use different methodologies on whether it's just the Trump vote being hard to capture 
or if there's different errors that are happening in these different states. So I would say that polling performed pretty well in 2020, definitely better than it did in 2016. But there are state-specific errors that need to be looked at and need to be learned from for 2024. These state-specific polling errors, could you identify some of those and how might they be addressed? For example, our Florida poll that we did for the 2020 election projected Joe Biden to take the state of Florida. That obviously did not happen. As we looked back at the data, we saw that there was a differing opinion among Hispanic voters in different regions of the state. So it's important for states like that to not kind of lump groups together. Demographics tend to follow similar trends, but demographics are not always the exact same in different regions and states. And that's something very important for pollsters to know. That's interesting when you look at demographics and specifically the Latin community in Florida. For generations, literally, that demographic has been considered a monolith. Sort of, oh, you speak Spanish, your your ancestry came from a Latin country, you're Latin. I'm wondering, in polling, are you able to look at specific demographics within a community? Most important thing when you do that kind of analysis is to make, make sure that the demographic subsets that you're looking at are large enough to extrapolate for. So if there's only 4, 10, 15 people in a group, it's definitely not large enough to look at. Once you get like the 40s, 50s, that range, you can look at those groups. And the thing that we do in our polls is we create regions within each state. You can definitely look at the regions. Even if you can't look at a specific city or community, you can look at the general regional trends and look at the demographics such as race within that region. So the demographics regarding race, how granular do those questions get? So traditionally in our polls, we when we ask the race question, we keep it pretty general. There's about six categories that respondents can identify with. Um, so we don't go into specific identities within a subculture, but we do have those general groups to look at. You mentioned the word subculture. So my take on this, it's it's fairly generic. White, black, Latin, et cetera, et cetera. It's usually Hispanic or Latino of any race, white, black, Asian, or other or multiple races. It sounds like Emerson College has been using a new technology that you alluded to earlier. I'm wondering if you can tell me, what does it take to actually be a leader in the polling industry and how one goes about becoming a leader analyzing your results? When the public is looking to try to figure out which pollsters to trust, a lot of what they determine that trust on is how the pollsters' predictions line up with the actual election results. A politics website that's very good in statistical analysis run by Nate Silver, it's called 538, nearly does pollster ratings, which kind of aggregate that pollster's polls throughout the year and do an analysis on how statistically accurate the results of that pollster are on average. We've done pretty well with 538, and they rated our 2020 polling with an A-, which is where we would like to be. Oh, congratulations. You just joined the honor roll. That's fantastic. <laughs> so 538 essentially pulls the pollsters and then does a lot of analysis to find out how good they are. Is that an accurate depiction? For the most part, it is. They include a lot of different information. They do deeper statistical analysis than we do here at Emerson to determine what the average bias of a pollster is. For example, they look at all the pollsters' polls and they say, hey, this pollster on average leans 0.5% to the right or to the left. So that kind of deeper level of analysis allows you to see not only how many polls that pollster gets right, but if they're biased in a certain direction. Imagine bias would be a considerable issue a pollster would have to consider when putting things together. How does Emerson polling contend with bias and what do they do to prevent bias in the manner in which they do the polling? 
we definitely do get accusations of bias, as all pollsters do. But since we're an academic entity, we don't come to our work with any ulterior motivation. We're just polling to get the results, and we're really testing methodology here. We're trying to make sure that our methodology can be tested in the, in the election to see how we can improve it in the future. It's more pollsters that are working for candidates or working for specific issues that have these allegations of bias. When you look at public opinion research, which is essentially polling, can it be used outside of political races? And if so, how? That's another reason that we're testing all these different methodologies. We want this kind of survey research and these methodologies to be applicable in all kinds of surveys. These can be academic surveys. These can be corporate surveys. These can be surveys that are done by issue groups rather than just generally for elections. I'm wondering if you could provide any examples of that. So in the past year, we've worked with a few different groups. A few weeks ago, we worked with the Pioneer Institute, which is a think tank based in Boston. And the Pioneer Institute wanted to conduct a survey that was kind of gauging the public perception in Massachusetts of how the public schools did during the coronavirus pandemic. We were able to get a good sample of Massachusetts with a significant amount of parents so we could gauge what these parents were thinking about their child's schooling in the past year. When I look back in my own history as a grad student at Emerson College back in the dark ages, I took survey methodology, some statistics classes, things like that. And when I look at what you're doing, I'm fascinated by how sophisticated it is. But one of the things I'm wondering about is once you have your data, how do you use it? Is it correlated one question against another? I'm hoping you can tell me more about the information you've gathered and how it's actually used. The process of putting together the data is a kind of tedious one, and it's a lot, a lot of research goes into it. So the first thing that we do is we put together all the data in different modes because we're not collecting the data from all the same sources. So we take the file that has all the data of the people who've answered the survey on a landline, the people who've answered a survey through texting, and the people who've answered a survey online. And once we combine that data set, we use the statistical software SPSS to weight the data to become representative. And that's where the research comes in. Because when we're looking at a population, we want to make sure that the data is representative of that population. We use the census for a lot of our research on this to make sure that we are looking specifically in a lot of these cases at the voting age population, because that does differ slightly from the general population. So we use the census data to give us a general idea of what the demographics in this state look like. Once we do that, we can use the statistical software to weight the data to become more representative, which gives us our final data set to work with. In terms of accuracy, you could talk about accuracy in polling, the different methodologies, how accurate one method might be over another. So this is a subject that's constantly up for debate among pollsters. Like I said, the live operator has been considered the gold standard for a long time because you are using actual people to speak to actual other people. But it's cost prohibitive and response rates have been declining even among those polls over the past few years as robocalls have become so prominent. Scams have become so prominent that people are just not answering their phones. So since the response rates are low all around, online panels jumped up in popularity about eight years ago. These online panels were not vetted properly, and the results for polls that were conducted solely from online panels were more inaccurate than ones that were conducted with other methodologies. As a texting with a newer methodology, it's kind of still being tested. But what we saw in 2020 from the preliminary results of these texting polls is that their accuracy kind of measures up to these IVR pollings and even the polling that's done with the gold standard, which is live operator. Isabel, I'm wondering if you could explain the difference between a survey and a poll. Polls are traditionally used for more political purposes, whether that be by a campaign or just by these public pollsters that are trying to communicate to the public the state of the race. 
So polls are basically asking which candidate is leading in the race and potentially what issues the voters are caring about. Surveys can be used in any industry for any purpose. They can be used to gauge public opinion on a certain topic, on a certain company, or on a certain issue. They're much more broad and wide-ranging and applicable to all. Would the work with Emerson Polling extend to consumer behavior? Yes. Actually, over the past three years, we've been doing yearly surveys with the FBRA, which is the Footwear Distributors and Retailers of America. So every six months or so, they come to us and they want to check what the footwear buying trends are in a certain season. It's been really interesting during the coronavirus pandemic because we saw we could compare our data from the data of three years ago and we saw obviously a huge spike in people buying their shoes online. So we use this data to kind of help them decide which consumers they need to be targeting for in-store buying rather than online because that's more of their mission. Tell me about the program with Emerson Polling. If someone's interested in becoming a pollster, what's the process? What are some of the classes that you would take? So at Emerson, you can get involved in polling as soon as you come with no experience. You can just join the polling society, which is the student group that looks at the work that Emerson Polling does. They help kind of craft questions and basically learn the ins and outs of how the publication of a poll happens. But also, you can take classes, specifically CC303, which is survey research methods, and CC405, which is political polling, which help you kind of get more of the statistical and data analysis skills, which teaches you how to use SPSS software and really run your own analysis on a data set. So after these two classes, you're essentially a legitimate pollster from what it sounds like. Yeah, there's lots of people that take these classes at Emerson and then graduate and are able to enter the polling industry with a leg up from any other institution because no other institution offers this kind of hands-on work with data that Emerson does. What does the future polling look like? I think as these technologies continue to develop, we'll see more of a shift away from this live operator polling and towards these new evolving methodologies such as texting and online panels. In our remaining time, I'm wondering if you could leave us with three takeaways relevant to polling. So my first takeaway, which I think is applicable to everyone, because we're all seeing these polls every single day in media, it's important to know that polls are a snapshot in time. Polls are usually taken over a period of three to seven days. So they're only, they're really measuring public opinion in that specific time. With how fast the news cycle develops, public opinion on issues can change very quickly. My second takeaway, which goes hand in hand with this, is to remember that polls are a range of scores. Every poll has an accompanying margin of error. The margin of error tells you what you can reasonably expect the result to fall between. So if a poll has a margin of error of plus or minus 3%, you can reasonably expect the poll to fall within six points, either three points below or three points above what is actually predicted. My third takeaway is that polling is constantly evolving and there are new methodologies coming up every election cycle. It's very important when you're looking at a poll to look at the methodology that is used and look at who is conducting the poll and make sure that they don't have any biases that would affect the potential poll results. You've been listening to Campus on the Common. I'm your host, Mark Brody. In this episode, we spoke with Isabel Holloway, Assistant Director at Emerson College Polling. Campus on the Common is a production of Emerson College School of Communication. Our executive producer is Dean Raoul Rice. Lucas Poiser is our producer and chief engineer. Chase Taylor is our associate producer. Campus on the Common provides an expert view into the field of media and communication through the field of academic experts and industry professionals from Emerson and beyond. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.